Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. Welcome to a very special episode of Show Your Work. You know, this is one of those episodes, another of our episodes about writing that was super exciting to do, but one of those ones that I was more excited after we did it than before. To be able to talk to somebody who's this uh, prolific and smart is great, but it wasn't until we were in the room with her that I was like, oh, that's how prolific and smart she is. Yeah, just to, I mean, I know we haven't named her yet and we're building to that, but she's a rock star. She's a boss. Like when we left, we spent what, three hours with her? We monopolized her time. Um, When we left, we wanted to worship her. And I mean, we were obsessed. We are obsessed. Absolutely. To the point where we are actually going to bring you two episodes with our special guest, who, if you've read the intro, you know who it is. Uh, (laughs) We're talking about author Taylor Jenkins-Reed. Uh, And so we have one episode. This episode is going to focus on her work and her writing and what that is like for her. And we'll have a second episode coming at you later in the season that is more of a book club that dives into Daisy Jones and the Six and also into the exciting TV developments of that project, right? Yep. But... For now, we're going to talk mainly about her work. Uh, She gives us not only stories about what it's like, but also some pretty great in-the-trenches moments of how she got to be who she is. Yeah, and we hear from a lot of you, and like there's no shortage out there of aspiring writers, right? And here is someone who's killing it, but she really breaks it down for us, the process of writing, the research of writing, But also, when you are a writer, your work bleeds more so than a lot of other professions. Your work bleeds into your life. Like, there's no formal truncation. Is that a word? Yeah, that's a word. Yeah. There's no formal truncation that you can make between, like, here is my work, and here is my life, and here is the balance. It is always blurry. Yeah. And it's even more so before your work is your work, right? Especially when you are trying to be a thing, but that's not your full-time gig just yet. And your side hustle is kind of transitioning into your work work. And she has a lot of stories about all those times that I, I really relished. Well, what I love about it, for those of you who aren't aspiring writers or who are in different industries, This is applicable to all of us, especially women, when we are navigating the new landscape or a modern landscape of being the primary breadwinner, being the person who is the professional star in the family. Yeah. And all the roles and labels that you didn't know were coming at you and how to deal with those. 
So enjoy our first episode with absolute phenom Taylor Jenkins Reid. And we'll be back at the end to tell you a little bit about the second one. Welcome to a very special episode of Show Your Work. It's true. We are out in the world (laughs) and uh, away from the dining room table because we have a very special guest. Who came to Toronto and we had to spend time with her because this, well, what she's done is some blockbuster work. Um, And we're talking about... We're talking about, would you like to introduce yourself? (laughs) (laughs) After that, sure. Um, I am Taylor Jenkins-Reed, author of Daisy Jones and the Six. We are obsessed with your book. Um, We're so happy you're here. Uh, We should probably set this up for the sound that's coming in because we have been planning to see you, so we're trying to give you a Canadian experience. The poutine has arrived. Oh, my God. Do you know what poutine is? I do, and I don't understand why every place on the planet is not eating poutine. (laughs) Okay, so So you've had it before. I've had it before, but there's never enough. I don't understand how you make (laughs) French fries into a meal and other countries are like, keep it. No, we should all have this. This is a little bit of what Oscar night looks looks like for us. So mm-hmm. we have all our chips. We have our sour candy. We are like... We're a lot more dressed than we would usually be. We're a little bit undressed on Oscar night. But like we're snacking. We're vibing on pop culture. We're talking about celebrities. We're talking about drama. We're talking about gossip. You're describing and my dreams. We, But it's perfect because you've delivered this book. That oh, well, seems to happen no. also in that realm and in that world. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing about the book, and we'll get into so many parts of it, but it's basically you've written a, like, a five-year sleepover. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is kind of like a five-year sleepover. Like, complete with, like, people getting mad and storming off. I'm going to call my mom. Talking crap about each other. Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, what do you think, like, that sort of very immersive thing where the people who you work with are the people who you love and also the people you hate and whatnot. Is there a specific place that that comes from? I mean, when you actually look at almost any content or certainly any soap, like that's all that it is. It's just people who are sleeping with the people that they work with. Um, And I think anytime you put a group of people in a situation and they can only, like they're not their interactions aren't happening outside. They're happening directly inside. Like everything just gets super juicy and fun. And then when you add the element of these are famous people and so there's um, an appearance of what's happening versus what's actually happening, then it just becomes straight gossip, which is which is the most fun part, I think. And because it's straight gossip, let's start with the narrative structure mm-hmm. because this is an oral history. Yeah. And so essentially, these are people gossiping about an album, a band, mm-hmm. a moment in time, like for this community of people. Yeah. Was it the only narrative that you considered? Yes. I never considered writing this book in any other way. I could not – it wasn't even like I was thinking, how will I do this? I think I'll do it as an oral history. I think that's the only way to do it. It was, I'm going to write an oral history about a 70s rock band. Um so I couldn't have conceived of a different way to do it. And and to be honest, I think if I had tried to do a traditional narrative, I don't think I would have succeeded. Um, I think the reason why the book works as it's written is because um, there's a – I'm trying to tap into like a part of your brain where you go, wait, did this happen? Did this really happen? I've never heard of this band, you know? 
And I think that you can only do that if you're using a nonfiction structure to tell a fictional story. Mm. That's where the meta narrative comes in. That's where the that's where the voyeuristic piece and and like let me peel back the curtain and see, um, you know the the truth behind the legend. I can only set up the legend if I'm presenting it to you as if it's legitimate. Um, and it's funny, a friend of mine who you know I talk to all day every day but I, she hadn't read the book yet. She came with me when I went to New York and I was doing all this media and she was like behind the scenes of like when I was on Strahan and Sarah or whatever. And she comes to me afterwards. She's like, oh, wait, I didn't get that like we're supposed to pretend this is a real band. I'm like, no, you're not supposed to pretend it's a real band. People are thinking it's a real band. Like, and she's like, oh, I didn't get it. it was like this thing on a thing. I'm like, no, I'm just writing fiction, but I'm trying to do it in a way where it feels like mm-hmm. nonfiction. And I and I had to do it in that structure in order for it to feel like that to me. I wondered about whether it was – how was it to write about all the drugs and all the drinking? Because it's so – like it's such a light touch yeah. because that's how it was. And there's, you know, everybody's saying, yeah, get a dime bag here. There are always lines there. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's so anathema to the way – that our culture is, like, even if that's still happening in studios, in recording studios, it's not talked about the same way no. at all. No. Well, was, especially diet pills. Like, right. That was the thing that, like, doing the research and and the way that people would talk about, you know, they've got these, like, cute names for all of these drugs. And I'm such a teetotaler. Like, you know, I, really a lot of where this comes from is that I come from a family of addiction, and I've seen it firsthand. I, you know, it's painful, painful stuff. So I was growing up like I didn't drink alcohol until I was 22. Um, I I smoked pot one time, and I still don't know if I got high. My brother's like, "You didn't," and I'm like, "I might have," and he's like, "You'd know." <laughs> I was like, "Okay," like I'm just not. I'm, I'm. I saw a lot of drama very early in my life, and my feeling was you know, how do I stay level? How do I stay away from that? Um, So writing this book was really interesting because I have to go into the head of someone who's doing drugs and why they're doing drugs and why they don't want to stop doing drugs um, and have affection, not condemnation for them. Because if I don't like my characters, you're not going to like them. So, you know, Billy's going on this, you know, tour and he's doing all these drugs and I have to not just understand him, but believe in him. That was really hard. That was really hard for me. I had to look in myself and see the ways in which, um, addiction is really, I think similar to any form of self-sabotage and everyone's self-sabotage. Everyone has unhealthy habits. Mine might be like eating too many brownies, whereas someone else's might be something else. Um, But we all have that ability to stand in our own way. Um, And so that's what I tapped into with both Daisy and Billy, the way that they lie to themselves, the way that, you know, there's a, a, Billy talks about, there's a line that you say that you won't cross and then you cross it. And you realize that the world didn't fall apart. And that's very dangerous information to have. And, you know, I haven't had that experience with 
drugs or alcohol because I haven't really even crossed that line. But um, I've had, you know, I've had that experience with saying that, um, you know, saying I'm going to lose weight and then not doing it or, and like repeatedly, like I live in Los Angeles. I'm always given messages like I should be thinner. I should be whatever. And sometimes I get in those messages and I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'm telling everybody I'm going to lose weight. And then the next I'm eating a plate full of brownies. Like, you know, everyone has those ways. Um, so that's what, for the emotional aspect of it, that's what I tapped into. For all the references to drugs, I was literally on message boards of people that were like, in the in 78, I was doing black beauties at the so-and-so. And I'm like, black beauties? <laughs> like, I, it was, like, I found these message boards of all these people bragging about the drugs that they would do. And I was like, you guys are nuts, but this is very helpful. <laughs> Tiny corners of message boards are so helpful. Oh, my God. Especially when you get into, like, what drugs people were taking, what they looked like, what the nicknames for them were, you know, because there's general information you can have, but anecdotal information is actually way more helpful because it's like, oh, well, this is how people really used it. This was second alls are what people were taking at night to go to bed. That's like, you know, um, that was the stuff that I was using. And that's how I designed Daisy's addiction was, over, was these message boards. And to your point, that's how they talk about them is, is you know, as opposed to the dare kit that you yeah. saw broken open <laughs> right. in, in seventh grade. Right. Like, yeah. uh, you're not like, this is a suppressant, yeah. you know, yeah. Angel dust, otherwise yeah. known as, you're like, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and how conversational they would be. Like, what are they admitting and they're not admitting? And and in the 70s, there was, um, you know, from, from what I've read, they talked about drugs in just a, a much different way. There was not an awareness that we have now. Um, I mean, I think the 80s really made it clear just how dangerous a lot of drugs and sex are. And, and so people's attitudes change. But this is a story that takes place right before that. Also, though, when Duane and I were talking about this, we've talked a lot about your book. Um, there was that one insight that you particularly loved about sleeping and high. Oh, that was great. That yeah. was that was really yeah, that uh people don't die getting high. People yeah. get uh, people die going to sleep. Yeah. I thought that was that was a direct quote that I was like I've never heard that expressed that way. But so I, succinct. And yeah. then when you hear it you're like, "Oh yeah. Oh, of yeah. course. Yeah. I think I stole that from Kat Marnell. <laughs> I think I if her well, Of course. <laughs> that was a huge, you know, I reading her memoir was a huge inspiration for Daisy and the way that like this woman just has everything going for her you know and she can't stop um and you know it's really really embarrassing and I have not really said this at all publicly but I'll say it now in Kat Marnell's book there's a section of it where she rails against an article that was published on Exogene where she was going to quit because of this article. And the article was called, was, it happened to me, Accutane made my butt bleed. I wrote that article. I did not title it that, but it was about my, it was the first thing I ever had published. It was your experience. That was something that literally, I went on Accutane it dried out my entire body. I got incredibly depressed. And one of the things was that I was bleeding and I had to go to the doctor. And I wrote the story of it. And it was actually the story of the question of, like, how much does appearance matter? And, you know, I really thought it was about more than the fact that my butt blood. But that's what they titled it. And I did not know this, but apparently it made Kat Marnell so upset 
because it was in the beauty section, and she was so horrified by how disgusting the title was, she threatened to quit Jane. And I was reading that memoir for research, and I come across it, and I was like, that's that's me. Like, how I, did you I did that. process that? I, I was so – my pulse, like, went through the roof. Like, and it was like nothing had happened to me. I was just reading a book, and, like, one minute I was fine, and the next minute I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And also, I found it embarrassing because I didn't want to title it that. Like, you know, and you're just starting out and you're trying to get whatever clips that you can. And, and you'll sell any story, you know, in order to to get published. And I had a book that I was trying to publish. And so I wanted to be able to point and say I've, you know, contributed to these places. Um, I was so embarrassed. I was so – like, I was reading it and I was like, oh, my God. And then I was like, well, Kat Marnell and I are very different people. And, like, it kind of makes sense. Like, we're – I have a lot of respect for for her work, um, but if she met me, she wouldn't like me. So, like, I understand why we're not – like, we didn't vibe in that scenario. Um, but, no, I was reading it as research for Daisy, and I read that, and I had to stop and, like, fully process that that, that had happened. So on that level then, because uh, my curiosity, are you musical? No. No, I know nothing. Blows my mind. Yeah. yeah. Are you oh, sure? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Are you sure? No, I'm totally – I know nothing. Like, nothing. I'm – I – um. there are times when, like, my husband will – my husband um, plays piano and guitar and, and he reads music. And I, at this point, honestly, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter knows more than me because she goes to piano class and, like, knows what a note is. And I'm like, what's a whole note? I don't know. Um, but – like, there are even times when, like, he'll be singing something and I'll, like, try to join in and then he stops. I'm like, why'd you stop? And he's like, that was a totally different key. I can't. I'm like, really? I thought I was, like, right there with you. He's like, we were completely, I can't, no. I was like, okay. Um, I know nothing. But but I took a little bit from my husband and my brother is a musician and um, has been, like, um, he was in, like, a local rock band in Boston for a really long time and did well. And he has, like, a historian's knowledge of rock. So, I wrote and I researched, and when I came up against a wall, I would go – I would say to my husband, like, how would Karen describe how she was changing, you know, the way she was playing from this to this? And then he would explain it. And then I'd go to Jake, and I'd be like, what's a band that in, like, 1974, like, only cool people knew about? And he would explain it to me. And I would just take those things um, and, and put them in there. I hesitate to ask my next question because I think – it falls into the category of those questions that maybe people only ask women. Okay. So I don't no. want to be that person. And yet, oh, I well, need no. a Cheeto for I think, this. I think I know what you're going to ask, and go ahead. So then my question is, so you took this on, yeah. this project, mm-hmm. without that knowledge. Like you took yeah. on a project that is about music and about the work of music from back to front mm-hmm. without – a, yeah. uh, a working musical yeah. knowledge. Yeah. And so what were the things that you said to yourself? Here's mm-hmm. me rephrasing the question, yeah. guys. What were the things yeah. that you said to yourself to get past that place? Yeah. Well, I think I, – I don't think that's a bad question at all. I think, if anything, the only – the the problem comes in in our society that we don't ask men that, right? Right. Like, yeah. like in fact, it's a very interesting question. I don't have this experience. What made me think that I could bridge that gap quick enough to write this book? That's- well, or just how did you do it so gorgeously? Yeah. Oh, like, well, it's, thank you. It's- it really, I think, comes down to I have a passion for what I'm writing about, and so the research comes very easily. I, you know, I want to know about 
like I was, I found it very fascinating to read front to back a 400 page book about the making of rumors. That was fascinating to me. Tagging every single thing and color coding it and saying, okay, this gives me information about musical instruments. This gives me information about the production, you know, um, I liked that. I liked reading Springsteen's memoir and again, like making those same things. Um, and really I think what it comes down to is why not me? Like, do, you know, yes, there are people that know more about rock that could write this book and maybe it would have a better verisimilitude. Maybe they would have better references. Maybe, I I don't know. Do I think, certainly I don't think a man would write this book about rock. And so the question just becomes, I had the idea. I want to do it. I'm going to try. And writing, I think, is different than a lot of other creative endeavors because I can do it fully in private. So if I fail, nobody knows. Um, But I mean, look, in order to be a writer, don't you inherently, there's some part of your brain that thinks like, I have something to say that people might want to listen to. It's that same level of confidence where I'm like, well, I don't know why me, but why not me? Why shouldn't it be me? If you're okay failing, I think you, you are freed to do a lot more and to take on a lot more. Um, I was totally okay failing doing this because no one would know. (laughs) Um, If the book had been bad, I would have been really bummed, um, but I would have scrapped it and written something else. I love writing and I'm not afraid to work incredibly hard and put my whole soul into it. So, you know, I'm just going to keep doing that. The stakes aren't that high for me because I, the the stakes become high when I publish. That's different. But I think I'm a good writer. I like to do it. So if I end up with something that I don't like or isn't good, I'm just going to start over. Um, It becomes a lot easier to take on things when I'm not afraid of what they will reveal to me about myself. Hmm. But I I think that you nailed it there. And, you know, what what you're nailing is that this book would have been shitty if it was written by somebody who knew whatever chord progression or whatever the fuck that is um, more than actual gossip, which is humanity and understanding how we relate to each other. Like that's – that is the primary skill required in writing this book, not chord progression. Yeah. And Which it's is, also, I think, the mistake other people would have made. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and also, like, you cannot write this particular book without caring first and foremost about telling a story about women. And in general, when we talk about rock, we talk about men. If I had written this book about men, maybe it would have been good. Would I have been as proud of it? No. Would I have felt like there was so much that was exciting to talk about? No. What's exciting to me about this book is that there are four very different women. You have Daisy, you have Karen, you have Simone, and you have Camila. And there are four different ways to be a woman, and they're fighting four different battles. And all of them, at the end of the day, fully support each other's right to to navigate the world as they see fit. That's what excites me. Um, And so I don't think – if a man wrote this book, I don't think that's the story that they would have told. So I know you're busy, you're touring. Yeah. And the book just came out. Yeah. But have you noticed a difference in the way it's being received (sighs) by men and women? Yes. Because. Yeah. Yeah. 
you talking like this mm-hmm. reminds me of like a conversation Joanna and I had about Big Little Lies, the series. <sighs> yes. And how mm-hmm. certain men reviewed it and they didn't get it. Whereas Emily Nussbaum and the female critics of it were like, yeah, this mm-hmm. shit is tapping into some truth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, to go back to that question, mm-hmm. probably reading reviews for you isn't like healthy or not for you. But no, like, I know what you mean. Yeah. But have you at least had a little bit of a taste of that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I looked it up and it's, I could see the difference. It's ve- Well, it's very – there's so many levels to this. On On the one hand, let me say that – and it really frustrates me, but it is the truth of the world – we tell the world that stories about men are for everyone. And we tell the world that stories about women are for women. Now, I don't actually care that much if men read my books. In general, men don't tend to buy fiction. They tend to buy nonfiction. And they also have certain genres that I don't write in. And these are all generalizations. But I have not spent – I've been very happy. I've spent, you know, five books with a 97% – female audience and the 3% were gay men, you know, I've been very happy in that space. That's who I'm writing for. However, more women will take your book seriously if they believe it is a book for men and women than if they believe it is a book for women. So more women are reading it now because it seems like general fiction. And that is a truth that I find frustrating but but understandable. And I don't blame women for that. Those are the messages that we're sending women. Um, so first and foremost, my work is now taken more seriously than it was even two years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, Seventh Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, maybe you look at the cover and you get the wrong idea because it is a salacious cover. But that is a book that takes on literally almost every controversial theme that I have an opinion about. Like, this is about sexuality. It's about domestic violence. It's about um, race. It, you know, it's about so many things. But I can't tell you how many people are like, dismiss it as fluff because it's about a movie star and so it can't be that important. But suddenly this book is very important because this book is about 70s rock, which is a male-dominated space and there are all these male characters and look, men want to read it. And on the one hand... I like that my work is being taken more seriously. On the other hand, I'm not doing anything different. And I and and this book is no different than The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. The way it's being received is very different. And yet, I think if you read some of the reviews, I do think it would be received even more different if a man had written it. And that also pisses me off, but it's something that I've been dealing with, you know, for six books. That, that my work cannot be important because I am a woman and I'm writing about women and it's the domestic sphere, which it's not. Um, so there are reviews. I, I There was a review that came out that I won't mention, but it really uh, chapped my ass. And it was like the, a fairly negative review that then at the end was like, but it was really fun and, um, and everyone should read it. And I was like, I'm confused. Um, but this... I appreciated there were people on Twitter that was like, I don't think you ever would have said this if a man had written it. And I didn't favorite any of those because I didn't want to be petty, but in my head I was favoriting them. <laughs> I was like, heart, heart, yes, yes, totally. Um, look, I, I have emails from, from men who are telling me, really good job. 
And it's like, oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so amazing. That t- yesterday on Twitter, I see this book reviewer who I love and I've loved for such a long time. And she's she's reading the book and she's like, I love it so much. And and I love The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. You know, and it said something. It was directly addressed to me. It was like, at T. Jenkins Reid, how do you do it? And I, you know, didn't see it for a few hours. And I, I check in. And literally a man who I've never met before in my life responded to her and was like, attention to detail and not overly descriptive language. <laughs> it's like, no one asked you to explain me for me. I'm good. I can tell you how I did it. But like, he literally piped in to explain mm. how mm-hmm. I did because I couldn't possibly understand mm-hmm. how I achieved this but fortunately he's here to explain it to all of us it's like the fucking dude recently I don't know if you heard about this who like piped in to offer his opinion on um, menstrual products oh my god and how to make them affordable like yeah mm-hmm. how sure. yeah. do you, mm-hmm. you know that dude yeah He's like, all you need are like 90 yeah. boxes of tampons in a lifetime. Or yeah. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Here's the math. Yeah. I figured it out. I had a man once explain to me what labor was going to feel like when I was eight <laughs> months pregnant. And he was literally talking to me because his wife had had a kid like two years ago. And he's like, if you've ever had a menstrual cramp, it's like that. And I was like, you need to shut up. I was the only woman at a bachelor party, oddly enough. And, he, and I was eight months pregnant. And um, and he was trying to explain to me what my labor was like. And I'm like, I'm going to need you to stop right now. Can I just tell you, I, this triggers a story that just happened to me yesterday. It's not exactly the same, but it's the same. I'm at the gym. I'm on the treadmill. I'm running next to a dude who is, by appearance, significantly older than me. I'm a loud runner, like a heavy pound, pound, pound runner. So he gets off the treadmill earlier than I do. He goes to do something else. I don't know what. I'm sweating by this time. Like, I'm finished my 5K. I feel good. I go to, like, get the bottle to spray down my thing. I turn around. He's right in front of me. And he's like, the way you run is very hard on your body. He said, your technique, your technique isn't very good. You are striking at the middle of your foot where what you should be doing is heel toe, heel toe, heel toe. In my mind, I am like, first of all, never tell someone at the gym what they're no, like. No, un- no, unless you are their trainer no. who they are paying anyway. But I'll tell you something about conditioning because that's part of what your point is too. So he tells me, heel toe, heel toe, heel toe. And then he says to me, he's like, you know, you may not feel it now, but you'll really feel it in your 30s and your 40s. And so now I'm like, oh, shit, this dude thinks I'm in my 20s. And suddenly I'm <laughs> now not it's okay. anymore. And it was fine. <laughs> right? But so it goes to, I was insulted. He insulted me. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. I lost my anger mm-hmm. when he told me yeah. I'm young. Yeah. Well, because. Or I look young. Because I am. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, right? Like, that's what we tell women. That it's so much more important that you are beautiful than you are capable. So yes, he said you're not capable, but then he gave you the compliment that you're beautiful. And that's what we've told women. That's where their value lies. I can't tell you how many times in my life men have just straight up condescended me and have been like, oh my God, thank you so much. And not even realize it until years later that I was completely being insulted because I'm trained to acknowledge that like, oh, you must be smarter than me. Your confidence and and your attitude are telling me that I should listen to you. And it takes me a really long time to unlearn that. I'm every single day I'm unlearning things. 
and still I'm embarrassed about the things that I haven't unlearned. That's, yeah, that was my gym story. I, <laughs> that's, that I'm struggling that's, with. That's super special. I need a um, cheat over that. Let's, yeah, let's, yeah, let's cheers for those men. And also cheers for the uh, possibly fictional man who, when you were telling your Twitter story, I was really hoping, uh, obviously, you are a very well-known person. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. But I was really hoping that he was going to chime in and say, oh, he does it like this. Oh, like whether yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, the name that could go either way has yeah. led people to believe, oh, this is a man. You know what's funny? I, for a really long time, people have often, um, when they have not met me, um, thought that, that I was a man. And it's really interesting to see the reactions when they find out that that Taylor Jenkins or Taylor Reed or whatever I've gone by at that moment um, is a woman. Um, and when my first, my first, first book that I ever wrote, I went out on submission with it. I didn't publish it. And looking back on it, it was not a good book and it shouldn't have been published. And I completely agree with all the publishers who turned it down. Um, but I wrote it from the point of view of a young man. And when I look at when I, why I did that, it's because that felt more significant to me. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm Nick Hornby. I'm Jonathan Tropper. I'm, you know, because telling a man's story is telling an important story. And I fell for that hook, line, and sinker. So I told a love story, but I told it as a man. And the biggest takeaway, you know, was um, if you're going to tell this sort of story, women are the ones that are going to read it. And so you should write it as a woman. Um, And I struggled with that a little bit. But when I first went out on submission, I had an author photo taken which is not necessarily something you do for like a manuscript. And I put that on the second page and I was, I wanted to be clear, but, but indirect in saying like, understand a woman wrote this. I understand it's a man, you know, main character and my name is unclear, but like I am a woman and this is what I'm trying to say. It was very important to me um, that people understood um, that I was writing from, from that point of view. I mean, that just naturally takes my mind to um, being a woman who is married yeah. in a relationship, a mother, mm-hmm. um, but you have this job, first of all, that takes you away, like you have yeah. to lock yourself away. Mm-hmm. You wrote an article a few years ago mm-hmm. about turning like your like basically giving it full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a writer, and that it was your husband who had to sacrifice. Yes. And that is a very, I mean, that's not what we were hearing in the 60s and the 70s and the right. 80s and probably 10 years ago or now. And today, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. there are a lot yeah. of people yeah. who, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because even the the word choice that I used, I think the title of it was like, my husband makes sacrifices so I can shine. Yeah. Right? If you reverse the genders, no one would call that a sacrifice. They would say that he was being a supportive wife. Um, my husband is incredibly supportive and um, puts my career 
first. He's also a writer. He writes for film and TV. Um, my career takes up more of our attention a lot of the time, even when it didn't make up the bulk of our money. Um, for a long time, you know, he was making way more money than I was and never said anything about it. You know, he was he was paying the bills while I was writing my first book even. Um, but he did that because he believed in me. And um, now I make way more money than he does. Like, I, I mean, he just, he, he looks at, he, he makes good money, but he's not, he doesn't make what I make. And um, it is very, very fascinating to see the ways, it's not Alex, Alex is fine with it. Alex doesn't care. Alex is like, I always wanted to marry like a badass woman who is, um, you know, taking care of business. But the way people react to mm -hmm. him is very different. Even close people, right? Even close Even people. family members? Family specifically. Uh -huh. Family okay. specifically. It makes people very uncomfortable. It makes people uncomfortable, I think, that I'm a mom who loves working, who puts uh -huh. so much into mm -hmm. my work. Um, I think, you know, it – my husband – I would say does more than fifty percent of the child rearing in our house. Um, he's more the one, than fifty. More than I just want to stress yes. that. Oh yeah, more, more than, than okay. more than yes. Um, he takes my daughter to school. He picks her up from school. He m most of the time is like the one making her lunches, the one taking her to the park. Um, he is a natural nurturer, and I think just like born to be a dad. I love my daughter, so I love taking care of her because I love her. I am naturally – I'm not a um, – it's not that I'm not maternal or, or, or nurturing. I'm both of those things. But if I had the choice of, like, making somebody's lunch or working on my book, I would much rather work on my book. My husband's like, nah, screw my movie. Like, what do you want? You want grapes? I'll slice them in half. You know, like, that's that's how he is. Um I could not do what I'm doing. I could not be on a what is essentially a month-long tour. I could not write at the pace that I'm writing um, without someone else taking on the caregiving role to raise my daughter. I couldn't do it. I don't think most people can do it. But most of the time, it's a man in this position, and so we don't ask how he can do it. And I think that's a really bad habit that we have because I want to know how people do it. I want, like, please, let's ask men how they're doing it. What does your marriage look like? It would be helpful to me to understand as I'm trying to set new roles in my own marriage with a two-and-a-half-year-old and, and this career that's taking off, you know, like, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it? What advice can I glean from all genders about this issue? But there aren't that many pieces of information about it because men don't talk about it. Only women are asked about it. Um, and so then it becomes the story of it being something, you know, really progressive. I, I don't I don't know how progressive it is. I, it is it is progressive, but I think it happens more often than we talk about. People just don't talk about it because they're supposed to be embarrassed about it, which is bizarre to me. I also wonder, uh, I'll never know, but I also wonder how many people – uh, male or female, are self-selecting themselves into more traditional roles without it being necessarily required. Mm -hmm. um, I am married to an in incredibly generous man who does a, a 
at this point, it's closer, but certainly at younger periods in our five-year-old's life was mm-hmm. doing the bulk of the childcare mm-hmm. because of a million reasons, one of which is that my life is less predictable. My mm-hmm. work is less predictable. And mm-hmm. we talked last week about how uh, in the middle of vacation, I suddenly was writing an article that was not expected, and he was delighted. Mm-hmm. He was so happy about it. He was like, oh, amazing. That's so fun. That's your topic. But I wonder how many people, I guess, don't ask, don't push that button, don't say, hey, I need to go do this thing. I need to be gone for three and a half weeks or whatever. You have to be, and it's something I'm really struggling with, and I, I'm i learning it more and more because, uh, you know, having a kid forces the issue in a way that it, it hadn't been forced before. You have to be okay taking. Mm. Like, it's not just being given. I have to take. I have to say to my husband, you can't turn that. I I need you to go pick up Lila. I can't do it. I have to finish my deadline. My deadline at this given moment is more important than yours. I have to say that. That's incredibly difficult for me. And But it also can't be on Alex to always offer it up all the time. I have to communicate what I need and, and we have chosen to prioritize my career right now. That means I have to take from him. Not just receive, but take. And giving is so much easier for most people than taking. Um, I have to work on on taking and saying, this is what I need. I would like it. Well, the other thing about that that's amazing is when you put yourself in that position or put all of you in that position, I don't mean you put, I mean that you agree together to do that. If you say, I need to take right now, there's also that idea where you can't pay back, quote unquote, right away. Oh, this is like if, if all the anxiety in my body is in the idea that I must pay it back right away. I, even I'm going on a, you know, on this tour and I think, you know, my husband went to New York in January because I was trying, I, I wanted to pay him back. I said, go to New York on vacation for the three weeks in November that I was working. And he's like, it doesn't, it's not a quid pro quo It's not quo a ledger. Thing. It's not. Mm-hmm. And his point, and he's right, is like, this is, our marriage should last a lifetime. By the end of it, things will shake out in the wash. This is not, you know, tit for tat on a day-to-day basis. My instinct is like, I needed this for work, so now I need to give you the same amount of time to do whatever you want with it. And it's weird because, like, look, we we bought a house um, last year, and we could afford that house. We were living someplace, and I found a different house that I wanted, and I was like, we should get this house. It's nicer. We can afford it. Let's do it. We can afford that house because of me. Because I sold this book, I, I can make that happen for my family. But my instinct is like, well, that doesn't count. The money shouldn't be a part of it. It should be we each do 50%. And Alex is like, you're insane. Like what's working is working. Don't worry about fairness. Don't worry about this idea you have in your head of always needing to be the one that does more, the one that takes less. What works for us works for us. But there's a lot of anxiety and erosy that comes with that for me because, you know, the messages that I'm getting every day are like, I should want, I should say, oh, I have to work. I don't want to, but I have to. And that's why I can't be with my kid. It's like, I love my kid. I love what I do, you know? So it's a lot of, again, we're talking about unlearning. Like there's a lot of unlearning for me as I process the fact that like I am the breadwinner in my family and my husband does the bulk of the childcare. It's, it's unlearning, but it's also like actively pushing. And yeah, it is actively almost 
unlearning for other people. Like you are pushing your mm-hmm. unlearning onto. The reason I say this is because I'm on a daily talk show here in Canada. And so they ask us to like share our personal stories. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the job. Yeah. And so the stories that often I share are about how selfish I am. I am a taker. <laughs> right. And so when I talk about my husband, who's in the room, our sound engineer here, um, when I talk about it, like the way that my life is, is I am a taker. He is the CEO of our home. He handles everything. I don't do anything except the things I want to do and have to do. Same. Right? (laughs) Yeah. But when you call it that, Mm -hmm. like you have still couched Mm -hmm. the things that you've just described Mm -hmm. in, I feel bad about it. Yeah. There's a certain amount of guilt. It's Don't judge me because even though I'm doing it, know that I feel bad about it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The persona that I have taken on the show Mm -hmm. is... I don't feel bad about it. It is just yeah. the way it is. Like It's important. He's at home right now. Like, yeah. maybe I won't call him. And yeah. he has to do this. I don't do anything. Mm-hmm. I'm a princess. Mm-hmm. Me, 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 me. Mm-hmm. The look on people's faces mm-hmm. in a live audience mm-hmm. and the response we get online, but the look on people's face, it's very uncomfortable. See, and I see you saying that, and it's like you doing that makes it so much easier for me to be me. Like, you saying all of those things, whatever, however you're exaggerating or whatever, whatever you know, tone you're putting on it, you doing that makes it easier for me to say, like you saying, you know, that, that you know, he's the CEO of your home and he's doing all those things. I'm going, oh, yeah, me too. Is that cool? Can I admit that, like, I literally haven't paid a bill in 10 years? Like, I don't do anything. I don't, I don't know, like, my, my husband, the house runs because of my husband. I'm in charge of grocery shopping and maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't, you know? Um, I'm not as bad as I'm describing, but I am. Like, there are times when... I just feel like I'm not doing anything. And then there are times when Alex will describe the things that I'm doing that I don't realize that I'm doing. And I'm like, okay, maybe it's equal. But we're supposed to do everything. It's always supposed to be that the that the woman is the nurturer and the mm-hmm. husband is the whatever it is, like the, the flower and the water. But to your previous point yeah. about the way people read books, the way women read mm-hmm. books, women too mm-hmm. are – the judges of this. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. You, know, you said um, that women take more seriously books that are written by men. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a conditioning that yeah. the unlearning process is all mm-hmm. there. Yeah. So part of that, part of the work is to get women to believe it. Oh, yeah. Oh, that that is the work. I, I think, like, you know, I don't really care that much what men think of me. I care very much what women think of me. Mm-hmm. And, and Say it again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I care so much more what my mother-in-law thinks of me than like any other person on the planet. My father-in-law, I love him to death, but like, you know, he'll give an opinion. And I'm like, oh, that, okay. And then, and then I move on. My mother-in-law, I live and die by what she thinks mm-hmm. of me. I care so much about her and her thoughts. And, you know, she raised three kids and she did it as, um, you know, she was primarily a mom. And there are times she's very supportive of me and very proud of me. But I know there are times when she's looking at, at our life and how it compares to to hers. And she's seeing the ways in which it's different. She's trying to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And I see that work that she's doing to come to my side. And there's a part of it where I'm like, you know, maybe I should just be one of those women that wants to get on the ground with their kid and play Legos. And I'm I'm not. I'm, I'm a person who I want to cuddle my kid. I want to read her books. But, like, I'm not uh, like seeing wheels on the bus person. I'm just not. Like, I do it for my kid. My mother-in-law and my husband do it out of joy. 
And I do sometimes feel bad. I, and I think, well, I should be more like that. But I'm comparing myself to other women. Mm-hmm. I want them to mm-hmm. think that I'm doing a good job and, and doing right by them, you know. Um, that's, that's the piece. But if I cared what men think, my God, you know. Oh, in ways small and large because a frequent thing that we've said on the site is small, um, we care more about what women think of our outfits. Than oh men. yeah, I could give a oh, shit. No. Yeah, what he thinks? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, about what I'm wearing. Yeah. And then the big is, you care about wh- how women think you are as a parent. Oh my god, like I- so much. Yeah, and in the workplace, right? Like mm-hmm. all of the people that we talk about who, how are they doing it all, or how are they not, or yeah, or mm-hmm. how are they parenting, or whatever, is because. You want to sit like we know how men are doing all the things, which is they're not thinking about it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I, you know, yeah. in one of my less proud moments, I snapped at a male showrunner and I said, Well, I wish I had a wife, sir. Can um, I tell you how many times I have said, I need a wife? Yes. Like, I can't even, <laughs> like, sometimes, like, I'll watch Mad Men and I'll go, Well, sure, look at what he was able to do. Everyone else was taking care of everything that he needed and acted happy to do it. Because this is what we're talking about is the, we are in three straight relationships with other people who also have very fulfilling, very complex careers, mm-hmm. right? It's not the same thing. As somebody whose partner is utterly and completely devoted only to making your life easier without having, as with your book, a whole life and drama and complexities of their own. Yes. I should mention that obviously during this part of the discussion, we have had to break out another bottle. (laughs) (laughs) As cliche Mm -hmm. as that might sound. Mm -hmm. That's where we are here. There's a whole whole diary there. Yeah. What's, What's the hardest part? You have talked a lot about um, the sort of day-to-day trials and that maybe some of the uh, business things have yeah. fallen away a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, proving to mm-hmm. the people you're working with that you can want what you want or et cetera. So what these days when you crack open the laptop, because mm-hmm. it's very clear that even as we're doing this and even as we're talking about the show and whatever, that you are still cracking yeah. open the laptop every yeah. day. What's the hardest part? Um, the hardest part for me right now is um, is that I've taken on a challenge that I didn't realize I wasn't yet prepared for. The book that I'm writing now is more ambitious than my talent, and I've had to very quickly bridge that gap, and it's hard. How do you know it's more ambitious than your talent? That's like I want to unpack that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can tell based on um, – based on the drafts, that I had an idea in my head of what I could accomplish. I wasn't the writer that I needed to be in order to accomplish that. And I have tried to become that writer. And, and you know, I mean, we can get into specifics. Like, it's third person, omniscient narrator. So, I, okay. and I thought, well, I've done, look at the challenge I've done. I did no narrator. So now I can do anything. And it's like, no, that's a huge, so is this, huge so skill. So it would be the first time you're not writing an I. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I thought somewhat cavalierly like look you know look at me go look what I'll do now and you know what it's really hard it's really hard because it takes it takes a different skill set it's not that the words are hard to come by it's that 
there's a different type of restraint needed. There's a different, there are things you shouldn't indulge that you have the opportunity to indulge in a third person narrator that I need to learn to undo. There are just aspects of it that I didn't know. I don't think I was prepared to write a story as um, close to my life as this one emotionally, not factually, not because of the emotional turmoil of it. That was fine. But because I brought so much to the experience of writing this book that I did not know in my early drafts that what I was experiencing in writing it and reading it is not what you would experience in reading it because you didn't live my life. So I'm so close to it that I think, you know, I had a conversation with my editor and we were talking about it. I was like, but don't you see that by the end that X, Y, and Z? And she's like, oh, that's beautiful. And I'm like, thank you. And she's like, that's not on the page. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was just feeling that in my heart. And and so it's, it's you know, being able yeah. to see it more clearly. Um, I didn't know that that was um, something that would not come as easy to me. I thought that it would. Um I'm also, it takes place in Malibu and, and the city of Malibu is a big piece of this story. And I thought that I could describe it very easily for people that don't live there. It's actually quite hard. It's very, very difficult to describe a place and make you feel like you're there when I have been there so many times that things feel very obvious to me. Like at one point my Mm. editor was like, what is, you know, where, where does, what is PCH? Like, what does that mean? Where does it take you? And I'm like, oh God, like I've spent this whole time saying, and then they cross the Pacific coast highway, not explaining what it is. Um, and so these are all ways in which what I want to do and the scope of what I want to do is so big and so exciting. But, um, I have had to drastically improve my skills in order to accomplish it. But you laid it out like it was an equation. I hope I'm not misquoting you, but you said my ambition outpaced my talent. And what I love about that is that you go, okay, talent, catch up. Let's go. That's exactly it, right? Like, Like you can always get better. It would be far worse if my talent outweighed my ambition if I was capable of more than I was willing to do. I'm willing to do more than I'm capable of. And so because of that, I will become capable of more. <laughs> you're just, you're, I, I just made a series of audible sighs and then and looked then, around for a pen to write down. And then I tried down. to fall backwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't think that we hear that. I think that we hear mostly that, like, all you need is the talent. Yeah. And what you just said is, like, have a bigger drive than you actually have the talent and then just, like, work on the talent. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's (laughs) the thing, right? Like, we talk about talent, we talk especially writing, as, like, oh, it's lightning in a bottle and and I was struck by this and then it just came out, you know? And it's, like, that's – it's a fiction. Like, I work really hard. I work nine to six every day. And and when things aren't right, I work harder. I like what I do, so working comes easier to me. But, like, you know, my husband talks about this where it's – a lot of people have drive and a lot of people have talent. But the people that succeed who have drive and talent, that is how you become great and then greater is by working hard at it, not by by being naturally good. Are you an immigrant? <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm not an immigrant, but here and I'm not gonna compare the two, but but I I um 
I, in many ways, uh, I come from a very uh, broke family and, and in many ways raised myself. And so I think I'm, uh-huh. I'm very much a product of, of having to do things myself. That's because also a common thread of show your work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's so interesting is that, of course, that's what Daisy Jones and the Six is about. I know yeah. that you know this, but I didn't know it until I was driving here. They teach her to work. Yes. Yeah. Daisy yeah. only has talent when mm-hmm. she walks in the door. Yeah. And none of her songs are ready and yeah. none of her yeah. uh, sort of songwriting skills are ready. And I find it really irritating about her. That makes me mad at her that but, she wants so much and works so little for it. But what makes her great is the only thing she wants is yeah. the thing that she will have to work at, which right. is the songwriting. Yeah. And then she blossoms when realizing that she has to work at it and put the work into it. Did you know this already? No. I mean, listen, like the Daisy is one of those books that reveals itself to you in like many ways the more times you read it. So I look forward to watching that reveal itself to me. I was thinking, I was like, why why didn't we talk about this? And I thought maybe she already knows this. But yeah, it's so clear to me that they're teaching her as a a group to work. Yeah. Oh, very much. And and – you know, there are people that are teaching her to work because they want to make money off of her. And there are people that are teaching her to work because they want her to fulfill herself. And those are those are two different factions. There are definitely people that um, are trying to get her to do work in a different way so that they can take a piece of her. And um, and that doesn't work with Daisy. Well, what caring about her does. To go back to your bigger point about, yeah. like, working on things you haven't been working on. Mm-hmm. You're writing in the third person now for your yeah. next project. Yeah. In many ways, and you talked about describing Malibu mm-hmm. and describing PCH or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Because this book was structured the way it was structured, there's not very many. She walked into a room and it was blue and Almost there was none. a staircase. Yeah. So you're going from a book where you had to really expand your talent on dialogue, mm-hmm. which you've nailed now. But now you're going back and, yeah, you're right. You haven't. It was, it was very cocky of me at the outset. But I do think that there's a naivete sometimes to the way that I choose what I'm going to do next that serves me well. Because I'm very much a, like, let me just start and then get myself into a real pickle and then get myself out of it. Where I don't think things through enough sometimes. And I think, like, with this next book, which I'm, like, in my head calling Malibu, uh, I felt like I wanted to challenge myself and I didn't realize how big the challenge would be. And there was, um, that was the only way that I would have done it. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, I've even said to my editor, you know, um, be ruthless with me on this edit. I want to grow as a writer and want this book to be as good as it can be. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is I want to be as good as I can be all the time. But also, like, you know, I think this is one of, a few opportunities in my life that I will have to tell a story that means as much to me as this one does. And so I want it to be my best book yet. And, um, and I, so I I knew when I was saying it, I'm going to regret saying this, but she is pushing me to be the best that I can be. And I'm thankful for it. So I guess the, the sort of summary question is you've talked a lot about this is, this is the place where a lot more people are looking and a lot more people are paying attention and there's a lot more opportunity. Yeah. You know where I'm going. Yeah. The other side of it is, is there a lot more pressure? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, but but the pressure is um, is 
in pleasing other people. Um, I have creatively pleased myself and I'm happy with that. I'm proud, even in the state that Malibu is in right now, it's not perfect and I'll continue to work on it. I'm very proud of it. And so no one can take that away from me. Um, it's more just like, is my publisher happy? Are the people that love Daisy happy? There are people that I want to keep happy and there's pressure in doing that. Um, but my opinion of my book is not going to rise and fall with other people. Um, I will love it. I loved Evelyn Hugo so much that it didn't really matter what other people thought of it because I thought I did, I did what I set out to do and I was really proud of it and I loved it. And I felt the same way about Daisy Jones and I won't release anything until I feel that way. They can't, they can't take away my pride in it. All they can do is I could disappoint them. You know, I could, my sales might not be as high, you know, that, that pressure. Yeah. And that rests on me. But look, I have an agent who tells it to me real straight. She's, she is, is ruthless in, in the way that she will, um, bottom line things for me. And so I know, I always know where the ground is with her and I really appreciate that. So to sum up, um, I just wanted to share with you something that we shared with each other before we met you, um, Duanna and I, when I, we were talking about this book, we were mad at you because we wanted to have written it. <laughs> but then if, but if I had written it, then, then I couldn't have read it. Like, I couldn't have enjoyed <laughs> it. That's right. <laughs> Woo. Well, now I think you guys have a little bit of a sense, or a lot, of why we're obsessed with Taylor Jenkins Reid. You mean why we gasped inside <laughs> all the way through that? Like, listen to us. We're just, we're basically at a tent revival through that whole thing. But here's the thing. This is so meta because we've just had a work conversation with her, and she's written a book about the work of being a musician and then a rock star. Which means this is where your work comes in or your homework. Uh, the next time we talk with Taylor, it's going to be all about the book. It is such a delicious read. Nobody is paying us to say this. It's really wonderful. Pick up a copy of Daisy Jones and the Six or get the audiobook, which is stacked with stars, uh, in time for the next episode so that you will be as up in arms about all the characters as we are. Look, you've probably already read it. It's a New York Times bestseller. It is really one of the sexiest, as I love the word you use, Duanna, delicious books uh, released, you know, of the last couple of years. And it's a book that took both of us by surprise, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I had expectations and then it went way beyond them. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're not the only ones. Also in the next episode, you'll find out who in Hollywood was so rabid to get this book that they basically didn't sleep over an entire weekend. Yeah, so we've got some Hollywood deal-making too in the next episode because of course, you know, once she's put her work to bed, other people want her work and there's all kinds of work behind that and stories um, she shares with us. We're delighted that she did. Um, and a lot of it relates to what we talk about ordinarily on Show Your Work in terms of adaptations and control. So until then, send us your thoughts, your emails, hit us up all the ways on social media. You know the drill. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to send us what you think the melody of Aurora sounds like, <laughs> that works too. Enjoy Daisy Jones and the Six. Um, and we'll be back soon with this follow-up episode. Bye. Bye.
the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.